Amen. How are we all doing this morning? All right, we got a lead meeting today. I'm kind of excited about that. If you don't know what those are, we are kind of bringing them back, and we define leadership at Crossroads pretty broadly. If you serve in any capacity, you're a leader at Crossroads. It's after the second service. They keep telling me it's at 12:15. I keep telling them it's when I get done after the second service. Don't box me in like that. And uh, it's going to be a pretty quick 30 to 35 minutes, and we know we're going to stay on time because I'm not running the meeting. So it'll be really good and just. It's a chance for us to come together and to hopefully see parts of CBC that you normally don't see and celebrate what God is doing. Because so often we serve and we get in different ministry silos. Those are good things because that's where we're passionate. And then we forget that what God is doing is bigger than just the place that we serve. And so it's really beautiful. And I, I love these kind of gatherings. So join us after the second service. This week, we're continuing our series in Leviticus and... It got me thinking about my church, past church experience. I do this church thing for a living, and I've been to a lot of them. There was a church in Chicago. I lived in Chicago for six or seven years, and I like trying new churches. And there was a church on the south side of Chicago that, if if you don't know much about the church world, you're not going to understand what I'm about to say as much, but these phrases you probably haven't heard together before. It was called St. Sabinus, and it was an African-American Catholic Pentecostal church, right? That's right. If you don't know what that is, you have not heard those three words successively ever in your life. And so what that means is it's a church that has a reverence and liturgy and kind of a high church feel, but at the same time, doesn't. And here's the best part. I went there one Sunday morning, and it is a three and a half hour church service, right? Three and a half hours. There are multiple dance breaks in the middle of this service. There's an intermission, and you're not supposed to leave. I asked. And... There is just a different, I grew up Methodist in Dallas. There's a different way to worship there than I was used to. And let me tell you something, I didn't really fit in, but it was pretty incredible to watch. And so what it got me doing this week, because we're going to talk about worship, is just thinking about how different worship experiences have been in the church over the years. I don't know your history or background. One thing I love about our church is because we're a Bible church, we get this collection of different church backgrounds and experiences. And so every time we have a CBC 101 and we meet new people and families, it's pretty great to hear the stories of people that come from Baptist roots or Methodist roots or Methodist in Texas, which is just another form of Baptist roots. And you get to see... You get to see kind of how, or Catholic, you get to see, or Anglican, how God has used their worship experiences to kind of shift how they see God, because those things change sometimes. If you were to go back to the first century world that Jesus stepped and walked in, when you'd go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, usually what would happen is you'd start by singing the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, talking about that the Lord, know the Lord, he's one, and let's raise our kids in all our days, let's talk about the application of the Lord to all of our lives. And then somebody would stand up, and they'd read an Old Testament book, and then somebody would stand up, and they'd read a prophet. Somebody would stand up, and they'd read some of the wisdom literature, and that was worship. I remember there was a church that I went to in college. I was in the choir at Moody, and we went to this one church in Kansas. And there was this one song we sang. We were kind of an acapella choir, and we actually broke out like the drums. It was an African spiritual, right? And so it was a bunch of white kids from Moody singing an African spiritual. And so um, we, we liked it. It was a little lively. And I remember we 
got done with that song, and in most places that we performed, that was when the people were like, oh, yes, you guys are, you know, God is good. There's music, and there's worship, and there's drum beats. And we got in the car afterwards with this family, and I said, guys, it was a little awkward. Most times people applaud after that song, and they said, it's the first time in 12 years somebody's used a drum in our church, (laughs) right? They were just hardcore on no drums and no music. There used to be, if you go back about a thousand years, they used to come together and do this monotone chanting thing. And if you're tone deaf, you think that's what I do every week when I gather for worship. But the point is, there are different kinds of worship throughout the years, even right now in our community. There are high church worship people that say some liturgy and they kneel and they stand and they sit and they do burpees for Jesus during their Sunday morning service. And there are more churches like us that kind of have a more, um, you know, one-on-one connection or (laughs) a lower church version of what worship is. We sing and we sing loudly and we have lights and we have screens. And so when we talk about worship this morning, when we talk about what it looks like, we have to understand that no matter how you worship God or how you have worshiped God, there are some principles that we can take from one way to the other way that I think are timeless truths about why we worship and what it does. Because in Leviticus, in the first seven chapters, this is our fourth week in the book, in Leviticus, the first seven chapters are on how they're supposed to worship. And you know what they did for worship? They set stuff on fire after they killed it, okay? We don't do that anymore, thank God. But when we look at the different types of offerings that they gave to worship God, I think it shows us some things about God and hopefully reveals some stuff about worship, regardless of how you choose to, um, how you choose to show your worship to God. There's one quote I loved. It said, God gave Adam and Eve the gift of his presence in order for them to have the privilege of worship. And that gets to the heart of what Leviticus is about. It seems like a dry, boring book, but really it's about the problem of presence. And we've talked about that. Leviticus is the story of God saying, I want to be present with my people that aren't holy and I am. And we have a problem. And so the way that they can be present with me is through how they worship. Because it's going to paint a picture of Jesus to come later. And so he says, Adam and Eve got the gift of God's presence so that they might have the privilege of worship. And the whole Bible talks about how we should worship God. In Psalms, it says, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. And really in the Old and New Testament, when you talk about this idea of worship, there's two constructs that are present in both, in both the Hebrew words and the Greek words. And really, it's like you bow down at some point and then you serve at some point. You remember the God that you're worshiping and that motivates you to do something with your mind or with your voice or with your body in some capacity. My favorite definition for worship is by a guy named Ralph Martin and he says it like this. Worship is the dramatic celebration of God in his supreme worth in such a manner that his worthiness becomes the norm and inspiration for human living. What worship does is it recalibrates how we think and provokes a response because we see the goodness of God. And so today... We're going to take some time and we're going to walk through the different offerings in Leviticus. And and we're going to have six principles that I think we derive from the Old Testament system of worship. Six things that I think we see and know about a God who's worthy of a worship. Six things that we need to remember regardless of how we worship that we see in Leviticus. But before we do that, let's take a minute and get ready for that. So at Crossroads, we have two goals on Sunday mornings. We want to know God, and so we open the scriptures, all the scriptures, even Leviticus, and we read about his character and his goodness, and we see that he's worthy of our praise. 
But two, we understand that as followers of Jesus, as worshipers of God, that true knowledge always leads to increased influence. So we don't gather here this morning just to answer more questions and Bible trivia games. We gather here because we want God to be known through how we live. And, and as we read the scriptures, it, it, it grows our affinity for Jesus so that it changes our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. That's the purpose. We want to know God and then experience his influence in our world. And so before we get going, we're going to take some time and just pray. We're going to pray that we hear the word of God well and that God does something through Leviticus this morning, that God reveals to us with the nature of, of what worship is. I'm going to ask that you pray for me that I do a, a good job talking about the text. So let's pray together this morning. God, I'm thankful that we can come together and, and, and worship this morning. <laughs> I, I pray that as we open the text, as we read through some of Leviticus, that you teach us about why you're worthy of worship, about some parts of what, what true worship is. I pray that we can bridge the gap between some people that lit stuff on fire a couple thousand years ago and how we worship today and see the singularity of your goodness that transcends cultures and time. So just pray that you speak to us this morning and you give us a joy for, for worship, whatever our history might be. I'd ask that if you're comfortable, just say a quick prayer to yourself that the Holy Spirit uh, who's alive and active in the followers of Jesus might do a work in your spirit this morning that we might grow together. Also, I ask that you pray for me. I might do a good job talking about the Levitical system of offerings and translating that into how we worship God today and the value of worship um, as it points to a God who's worthy of it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, we're in it together. So in Leviticus, the first seven chapters deals with the idea of worship. And, and so far what we've done is looked at Leviticus through different lenses. We've talked about it through the lens of grace and presence, meaning it was written because God already, already rescued and said, I want to be with my people. Uh, we talked about the lens of holiness, which is basically God saying, I'm different, I'm set apart, I'm other. And you can't read Leviticus without understanding what holiness is and how he calls us into holiness as well. And today we're going to look at the idea of worship, the lens of worship throughout the book of Leviticus. And it starts off right at the beginning and it said, here is what it looks like to worship the Lord. And the first seven chapters launch into five different offerings. And so we're not going to go verse by verse through that because it gets pretty gory a little bit in there. And this is definitely a PG place, not a PG-13 place in Flower Mound. So what we're going to do is look at the big picture at the beginning, and then we're going to draw some principles from that and kind of go into more detail about each one. So there were five different kinds of offerings that the people were called to give. I'll just go through all of them right now. There's the whole burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And just so we know the difference up front, the whole burnt offering was kind of the most general kind of sacrifice. It was given if you were a priest twice a day at the very beginning of the day and at the end of the day. If you're an individual, when you went to the temple, this is what you did. It was kind of a catch-all for, I know I've messed up and there's a holiness issue between me and my God that wants to be present with us. 
and you'd take a whole animal and you'd lay them on the altar and all of it would be consumed except for the skins. And then chapter 2 talks about this idea of a grain offering where God says, do some baking because I want to be near you. And he talks about different ways that you can make grains and unleavened breads and bring that to the altar so that they might be consumed. And it deals with our dependence on God. Then you have the peace offering, which is my favorite. We're going to get there at the end. The peace offering is when you bring a whole animal and it's about me and you. It's our relationship together. Let's make amends and celebrate. And so you ate some of it, and then you burned some of it. You have a sin in the guilt offering, the final two there. And one is for the sin offering is for when I have unknowingly trespassed against you. Because sometimes sin is unknowing, and then sometimes sin is knowing. That's what the guilt offering is. The ways that I know I've taken advantage of you for my good. And that isn't good if we're followers of God. So we have five different kinds of offering, and what they do is they show us different dimensions into who God is in his holiness. They serve as a roadmap to say this, this is what it means to be holy as I am holy. And so throughout the five of these, I think we learn some things about the fundamental nature of what worship is, whether you have drums or not, whether you sing hymns or not, whether you stand and sit or not. And so I think the first thing we learn to jump right in is quite simply, and you can't overlook this, worship is personal. It's personal. It always has to be right at the beginning of the book. In verse 3, he says, if this, talking about the whole burnt offering, he says, if this offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he must present it as a flawless male. He must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting for its acceptance before the Lord. How these offerings went. As you came up with your offering and you brought it to the priest, you brought it yourself and you brought it to the priest. And then the priest would look at your offering and deem it worthy or unworthy. Is it clean or unclean? Are you trying to get away with something that you shouldn't be getting away with? Are you bringing your best to God? And so the priest then would say, yes, it's worthy. And usually there's four of the offerings that require the sacrifice of animals in some capacity. At that point, you then would kill what you brought. And you lay it on the altar, and they do different things with it there, depending upon the kind of offering you brought. And in verse 3, and in all the other offerings except for the, the grain offering, what you see is that you pick livestock from your herd, and you walk it up there, and you say, this thing will die for me. My grandfather's a farmer, and we used to go up there in the winters every once in a while. And I remember this one, I think it was Christmas, I don't know, I just remember it. It was really cold one day, and there was this cow, and they were, she was about to give birth to the baby cow. I should know the name for that. I do not. Um, and, and I remember that my grandfather, being a farmer, was afraid because it was so cold that the mom would leave the baby cow that I don't know the name for. Calf, I think, right? I'm getting it. Yeah, Iowa for the win. Um, and, and I don't remember telling the details. I just remember that my grandfather brought home this baby calf and it stayed in the basement for a little while and like we fed it milk and things like that and I remember the first time I'd ever been around I think a baby calf and I remember people giving it bottles of milk or feeding it and I don't have a ton of descriptors there of what it was like I just remember thinking I was with this calf when I was a kid for about a week and I remember feeling even to this day some sense of connection to it every animal you brought to, to sacrifice to God in worship was an animal that you raised from when it was a baby. And you walked it to the gates and said, this thing will die for me. Worship is incredibly personal. And even more so than just, I, 
know that this animal is going to take my place. If you keep reading in verse four and five, it said that you're going to take this animal to the altar. You must lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Then the one presenting the offering must slaughter the bull before the Lord and the sons of Aaron, the priests. They must present the blood and splash the blood against the sides of the altar, which is the entrance of the meeting tent. So not only is it your animal, that you, you knew from when they were probably born. But before you killed the animal, you touched it on its head and you said, might my sins impart to you. One commentator said, all a man's powers must be active in divine worship, heart and mouth as well as hands and feet. Mere ceremonial or church attendance is inadequate by itself. They must be accompanied by heartfelt prayer and praise. I think the first thing you see when we talk about worship, the first thing you see is that it's an incredibly personal exercise. It's when I bring who I am before a God who wants to be present in my midst and say, this is what I have for you. And I'm not perfect, but you are. And I think it's hard for us. So we're going to talk about how these things apply to us or don't. Things we're good at when we look at principles of worship and things we're not. And so we have narrowly, I think, defined worship in the church in the West as just singing some songs before somebody talks for too long on a Sunday morning. And, and I think that does a disservice to what worship is. I think worship is a, is a good response to God's goodness. It's a recalibration and a response. And, and it looks a lot like singing to us, but it's an incredibly personal endeavor. I remember one of my first series at Crossroads 11 years ago when I was hired as the middle school guy. They didn't let me be a pastor yet because they met me. And they're like, we're just going to be a middle school guy. Good. All right. So the middle school guy, we did a series on, on worship. And each week we did a different aspect of worship, nuance of worship. So we started with the singing because that's what we know. And then one week was journaling. I remember I had a middle school boy's mom stop me and say, my son's a boy. He doesn't journal. And I said, David killed things with his bare hands. He journaled. So, you know, let's have that conversation. But um, I said, maybe he could give it a go. <laughs> um, so we did journaling and we did art so you could draw some pictures. And my favorite week, it's one of my favorite weeks I've ever had, like, in ministry, was silence. Middle school kids. Right? And we probably had 60, 70 of them. I don't know. There's a lot in the room downstairs. And we talked about the value of silence and the way that Tuesday nights at that point were laid out as we got together as a big group, gave a little teaser, they broke them into small groups and then we came back in and I kind of wrapped everything up and we did some worship. And so as these kids came back in a dark room, we all had, had tape over our mouths as leaders, very culty. And, and as they walked in, we placed a piece of tape over all the kids' mouths too. So glad parents weren't there. <laughs> I didn't know. And, and, and on the screen was just this really slow, methodical, like, word picture, if you will. And there was no music. There was no sound. And you're just going to ask questions about the value of silence in the role of worship. And at the end of it, we said on the screen, leave like you came in, in silence. And 80 people got up and they just walked out of the room. It was really, really powerful. One kid came to me and said, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. She said, this was my first week here. I said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know? But it's the idea that worship fundamentally, whether you're sacrificing animals or singing some songs or drawing some pictures, it is incredibly personal. I've heard too many people say, I'm just not a singer, I can't worship. That's not true. You miss the nature of what worship is in the first place. I have a friend of mine 
who's an artist. And the way she worships is a little different. As people preach or as people sing, she has this, she's got a big Bible. And um, she's a really good artist. And what she does is as people teach or sing, she sits down and she draws on the pages of the Bible. And her whole goal is to fill up that whole Bible with just pictures in there. And I think we have a couple. So like this is, this is a big page. It's one of them. There's a couple more, I think. Um, I mean, just so incredibly cool. Uh, and as she draws on this thing, sometimes people look at her like, what are you doing? The guy is preaching and you're, you're, you're graffitiing your Bible. And I think her response is, this is how I'm showing my deep gratitude for the deep goodness of who God is. Worship is incredibly personal. I think the, the scriptures speak to that again and again and again. You bring your calf, you bring your bull, you bring your pigeons, you bring yours, and you say, this is mine, and so my worship has to be from the heart of who I am. So worship is personal, I think. The next thing we see um, is that worship is costly. <laughs> In four of the five, you actually sacrifice something. Something dies for you. You lay your hands on the animal and you walk out and usually you're covered in the blood of the animal that you killed at your expense. David says it like this in Samuel. He says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Intrinsically in worship throughout the Hebrew narrative, the Hebrew story of the Old Testament is this concept that there's a cost associated with worship. There's a cost associated with worship, and you just got to look at it from their perspective and see what they're talking about. They were an agrarian society, and agrarian societies were built upon two things, crops and animals, and usually the animals were used to help actually make and plow and, and collect the crops. And if you've ever been to a third world country, you understand the value of even one animal in the life of a family. My grandfather used to support a ministry called Heifer International, and they would help people use animals to pull themselves out of abject poverty. Because you give a goat to a family in Guatemala, and that's sustainable income, more than they've had for generations. So what you're saying is you're going to take one of your livestock that helps you feed your family, that helps you plow your fields, that helps you live, and you're going to give that to God. The, the intrinsic idea there is that when we worship, it comes at a cost to you. And that's hard for us. I think this is one we're really bad at. Because frankly, I think that we do two things. We don't worship out of the currency of cost anymore. We worship out of the currency of, of convenience and consumption. Lots of C's there. So they went in knowing it was going to cost them something. But our worship now is just different. And I think it's mitigated the idea that it costs something to worship. Because you can pick what time you want to go to service. On Wednesdays or Thursdays or Fridays or Saturdays or Sundays. Or you don't have to even pick a time. You can just listen to somebody online and, and plug in some worship music and say, God is good. I went to church this morning, you know. There's a cost associated with worship. And for us, it's not going to be animals. Let me tell you that again. It will not be animals. But what it will be is your time. And time costs a lot for us, you know? It'll be saying that I don't feel like getting up and worshiping with people this morning because I have other things I want to do. I have chores I want to do. I'd much rather be brunching in college. I went to church every week with Pastor Pillow and Reverend Sheets. You know what I'm talking about, right? Just the idea that getting up and going somewhere is going to cost me more than I want to give. We don't worship anymore out of the currency of cost. We so often choose convenience over cost. And it's hard because we're a convenient culture. 
And I don't say that to make anybody feel badly or bring shame. I say that simply to say this, that there's a beauty in saying that worship costs me something because it always has cost somebody something. Whether that be your animals or ultimately what it pointed to in Jesus. And so sometimes worship is inconvenient and that is okay. <laughs> That's okay. Two, I think we operate out of the currency of consumption. And this one's really difficult because we are a consuming culture. And what I mean by that, what that most looks like is you go to church like I go to church and probably the first question you ask when you leave is what did I get out of it? And that's not bad. Hear me, that is not bad. But the problem is we experience God in worship and we ask ourselves the following question, what did it do for me? Our transaction in worship becomes about what we get out of it, not what we give to God. And in the Old Testament, it was largely about what they gave, not what they got. It was about me giving God something because he's worthy of it, because he's earned it, because he's good enough for it. Instead, now we say, what did I get out of this worship experience? And that's just an immature view of what worship is. Hear me. It's not bad. It's immature. So there is a better. There was a lady I, in college, you know, serve in different ministries, um, kind of like community service. And so I got there. And uh, if you're a freshman, you did the ones that nobody else wanted to do. And so I got placed in a nursing home as the music leader, music guy, right? They met me. And so I, um, I led the music for this worship or this uh, retirement home. And I get up there and <clears throat> I said, what do you guys want to sing? And they said, do you know any hymns? And I said, no, no. And they said, do you know Amazing Grace? I said, yes. And there's this one woman. She's the sweetest woman. Every week she would look at me and she would just say, can we sing In the Garden? And then we'd sing it. And then she'd ask to sing In the Garden again, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And it became clear that that was like her jam of a hymn. And it was great. That this is what I want to get out of my worship experience. But in the Old Testament, I'd say that fundamentally there's a deeper, better view of what worship is. It's not what I get out of it, but what I bring to God. It's a grown-up view of worship. It's like Christmas. When you're a kid, you think Christmas is great and free. <laughs> you know, and you're like, it's amazing. These presents show up. It doesn't cost me anything. I just wake up to the best day ever. When you get older as an adult, you realize Christmas is amazing. It is not free anymore, right? And it costs you way more to actually have Christmas than it did as a kid. But you know what doesn't happen? It's still good. You still get something out of Christmas. And so when we come to worship, even though it costs us something, God still uses that to teach us and to grow us and to give us joy. Because at the end of the day, if you worship because of what you can get out of it, you're really worshiping you and not the God that says, I'm worthy of you bringing stuff to me. And so they said over and over, worship is going to cost you something, and it's good. It might be time, it might be money, it might be, I have to sit through songs I don't like with people that I'm not fond of this morning. And that's okay. Worship can cost us something, because God's worthy of it. And our worship is about us bringing things to a God who's worthy. And then what he does with that is amazing, as he teaches and grows us and gives us joy, as he recalibrates how we see goodness. So worship is personal and worship is costly, I think we also see that worship is work. I'm going to read a longer section of the end of chapter 5 or the beginning of chapter 6, depending on how your Bible uh, breaks it down. This is, he's kind of given the different ones and they go into a they go into the order of the priests. So in the different worships, in the different offerings, this is what the priests will do. And it says this, then the Lord spoke to Moses, command Aaron, the priest, and his sons. This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on 
um, the hearth of the altar until um, all night until the morning. And the fire of the altar must be kept burning on it. Then the priest must put on his linen robe and must put linen leggings over his bare flesh and he must take the fatty ashes of the burnt offering that the fire consumed on the altar and he must place them beside the altar. Then he must take off his clothes and put on other clothes and he must keep bringing the fatty ashes outside the camp to a ceremonial, ceremonially clean place. But the fire which is on the altar must be kept burning on it. It must not be extinguished. So the priest must kindle wood on it morning by morning. He must arrange the burnt offering on it and, other, and, and uh, offer the fat of the peace offering up in smoke on it. Verse 13, a continual fire must be kept burning on the altar. It must not be extinguished. If you're a priest in this offering system, this worship system, one thing you knew and knew well, worship wasn't easy. It wasn't emotional. It was work. I love all of the kind of let's leave people out in the woods for a week shows for some reason. I think it affirms some kind of madness I don't have but want, you know? It's kind of like when I walk into Lowe's. Do I know what I'm doing? No, I'm just going to soak this in for a little while, you know? And one of the hardest things that's always happening on these little reality TV shows is to get a fire going but your job's not done when you get the fire going. Keeping it going is almost as hard. Day in and day out. In the Levitical system of offerings, God says, this is what worship is going to be about. You will always keep this fire burning. Always. If you go to the grain offering in chapter 2, it says, before you can come here, you're going to do some work and bake some bread and offer me different kinds of bread based on what you have in your pantry because worship is work. I think one of the hardest things we have to overcome is that worship is not a byproduct of the situation we find ourselves in or an emotional response to God. Worship, worship is work, meaning sometimes you got to tell yourself that I'm allowed to worship God when I don't feel like worshiping God. And that's hard. Because we are a culture that's motivated by emotion and we've made worship, and this is not bad, but we've made worship an emotional experience. And that's okay, but it can't stop there. That's why Andy has one of the toughest jobs up here on Sunday mornings because he's supposed to sing this song and then that song and then this hymn, but the way God wrote it, not the way that you know, Shane and Shane wrote it. All these different ways that we talk about worship. And what that does is it shows us that sometimes we think worship is situational and circumstantial. And it seems like the Old Testament makes a case that worship is none of those things because God's always, always, always worthy of the worship that we give and bring him. That's why one of my favorite things in the world has been to watch other cultures worship. I've had the privilege of going to different countries. I lived in Guatemala for a little while. I have been to Africa to teach through CBC stuff and just go to Mexico every year and I've been to Haiti and You can be in these cultures where I'm looking around and thinking I'm really questioning the goodness of God right now. I haven't eaten in a couple days and I smell and it keeps raining and you can fill in the blanks on why circumstances and situations aren't good. The church we meet in is not a church at all. It's a small hut and it smells, right? And these people get up there and they start worshiping God. And as a Western American consumer-driven comfort-forward person, I have to check my surroundings and say, God is worthy of worship whether I feel like worshiping God or not. It has to move beyond the emotional to understand that my God is worthy of worship all the time because if he's not, he's not a very big God. And so the Old Testament talks about what the offering passages give us in Leviticus is this picture that sometimes worship is work for you and me. And that's okay. I love what one writer said. It's kind of a paraphrase of it, but he said, liturgy isn't dead or alive. That's the wrong category. Liturgy is true or false. It's the worshiper who's dead or alive. 
So my point is that we can come in here this morning and if we didn't sing your song the right way, if we didn't sing my song the right way, or if the music was too loud or too quiet, if the lights were too bright or not bright enough, that should not, that should not affect your ability to worship the God who's bigger than those things. I'm not saying we're not gonna try to get those right. I'm not gonna say that you don't have a, a feeling of deepness when we sing your song when we worship, and we try, and those are good things. But if you can't worship because the circumstances aren't right, that's a you problem, not a God problem. Because worship sometimes is work. Because God is worthy of it, even when it's hard. So worship is sometimes harder than we think it's gonna be because it's not just an emotional response to God. Well, over Charles Spurgeon says, the divine power and glory are not confined to any places or localities. They're to be enjoyed wherever there is a heart that longs and a thirst to behold them. So we see that worship is personal and we see that worship is costly and we see that worship is work and you're thinking we're only three done. We're gonna pick up the speed a little bit, okay? Worship is reconciling is number four. And this is the one I think we get really, really well. Throughout the entire first seven chapters, what we see is the idea that worship reconciles us to God and people to people. So the two you most clearly see this with are the last two, the sin offering and the guilt offering. And those are two different ones. The sin offering said, hey, things where you've violated me and didn't know it, and then things that you took advantage of me of and you knew it. The word for, um, the Hebrew word for atonement there, which is what is happening in a worship transaction in the Old Testament, has two different meanings to it. One is to wipe away, and one is to pay compensation for what was wronged. And so you see both of those themes in those two. The sin offering was one where you wiped clean what was seemingly an injustice. That's why It says in verse 2 of chapter 4, tell the Israelites when a person sins by straying unintentionally from any of the Lord's commandments, which which must not be violated. If he violates any one of them, and then it goes on to talk about all the different ways he could violate it. And then three times in that chapter, you see this phrase. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. One commentator said, sacrifice is the appointed means whereby peaceful coexistence between a holy God and a sinful man become possibility. So it's this idea that it bridges the gap between the ways that I've violated God. So that word means atonement there in the Hebrew. It means that I've overstepped my bounds. I've crossed a line and I've taken from. That's what Jesus references when he says, forgive us our trespasses. And may we not trespass against in the Lord's prayer in Matthew. And so what he's saying is there's ways you violated my goodness and you don't know it. And then there's ways that you've taken advantage of your fellow people, the guilt offering. And in that, it goes even a step farther. And it says, we just don't deal with what your sin does to other people's feelings. We deal with what it does to their stuff. And so part of the Levitical commandment there was you're also going to give 20% on top of what you took as a recompensation for taking from them in the first place. We not only wipe away the violation, but we pay for the violation costs. And all of that, we're going to get there in a few weeks, all of that is a picture of who Jesus is and what he did for us. All of it. All of Leviticus is. And so in the middle of, and this is going to be Palm Sunday for us, in the middle of the book of Leviticus is two chapters that center the whole book on the Day of Atonement, their biggest day of sacrifice that Jesus comes to fulfill. And so worship reconciles, meaning it brings what was wronged parties together. It absolutely, in every single way, puts down any of the trespasses against one another, and it unites a people who are divided because of sin. That's why you see this beautiful picture in Revelation of all people that gather before God. Revelation 7, I'll read it for you. 
Verse nine, after this, I looked and behold, and this is the end times, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and all the peoples and the languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Worship reconciles. Worship equals the playing field of privilege before God, no matter what class you're from or race you're from or gender you're from, no matter how deep or egregious your sin is, worship makes it all equal before God who we equally need the presence of in our world, in our lives. That's why throughout the entire Levitical code of worship, you see different levels of things you bring based on your income level, just to break it down for you. So, hey, if you're rich and you got bulls, bring the bulls. If you don't and you just got pigeons, bring some pigeons. If you don't have those and you got some flour, bring some bread. You're going to bring something that costs you something and nobody's exempt from worship, no matter how much money or how little money you have, no matter what your baggage is, your history is, your sin history is, we're all made for worship. And when we worship, we look around at one another and say, God, unite sinners because of who Jesus is. That's why when you go to other countries and you worship with them, it's a beautiful experience. That no longer are we American or Haitian or African or Guatemalan. We are people following Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does as he unites and reconciles people. So worship is about reconciliation. And then as you get into it a little more, it's also about as we're reconciled, it's about dependence. So the second worship offering to the Levitical people was the grain offering. And this one is kind of the most unknown The other ones cover sin. They're said to explicitly cover sin, whether it be yours or mine, me to you, me to God, it covers sin. And there's a cost to it. The grain offering doesn't do that. The grain offering is really make some bread and bring it to God. And it's it's also known as a tribute offering. And what it's supposed to do when he talks about it in the first couple verses of Leviticus is fundamentally it's admitting our dependence upon God for our everyday needs. The word picture there is kind of like if you've been beaten by another king and you have to go to that king and say, here is some grain. I depend on you for existence now. It's the only one where death wasn't present. And why you have to bring unleavened bread is because they didn't allow any kind of leavening agent, yeast or anything, because that led to fermentation, which led to something dying. This offering is about us admitting that we need God. It's about us admitting that we need to depend on God for everything. It fights, it fights a mentality that we might have that we provided for. It fights an entitlement mentality in the people of God, and it brings us together. It also shows us in pretty great ways that not only does worship depend on God and God alone, it also needs all of us. So every single one of those offerings, every single one had different roles and players to play. There was a role for the priest and there was a role for the people and there was a role for the friends of the people that went with them. And what it does is it fills out this idea that worship is not just dependent upon us recognizing that we are dependent upon God. Worship is all about us recognizing that it's better if we do it together. It's more full. That's how God wrote into the code of the Old Testament. You need each other for this because you all have different roles in worship. One is not better than the other, but they're needed. So some people sing and some people dance and some people go to a Catholic Pentecostal church in the south side of Chicago, right? We all have different roles to play in worship. He's making a case that we were meant to worship God in community to see worship at its fullest extent of what it's supposed to be. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 34, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glorify, I will glory in the Lord. I will let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. 
That's why we want people to sit closer to each other. We can fit 900 chairs in here. We won't do that until we have 904 people, you know, <laughs> because I want you to sit next to somebody because worship is sweeter when we do it with people who also love Jesus next to us. We need each other. So worship is personal and worship is costly and worship is work and worship is reconciling. Worship is about dependence and finally worship is, and sometimes we don't do very well with this, and worship is celebratory. My favorite offering they gave is found in chapter three. It's the peace offering. And it looks a lot like the burnt offering. You'd take your cow or your bull or your pigeon and you'd go in front of the high priest and you'd say, this is what I'm bringing. And he'd say, yep, that's acceptable. That's good. And in the burnt offering, he would skin it and then everything else would be consumed and the priest would use the skin for garments or to sell it to support their livelihood. In the peace offering, you go before them and you literally burn only the things that were inedible. And everything else, it says in the peace offering, the people I go with, we have to cook that and eat that as a meal within 24 hours. So it says you will go and you will keep this and you will eat it together and you will celebrate the goodness of God that has brought peace within the relational context of my people. And you will do it like now. You're not going to do it so you can like put it in the deep freeze and get to it down the road one day and then forget it's there in the first place, you know? He says, you're going to go sacrifice and you are going to eat a meal and celebrate that God is good. And I think we're not great in this capacity. I think that we like serious and somber worship and that's a good thing. There's this tension always between worship that's properly reflective on the cost of worship and also properly celebrating what worship does for us, what Jesus did for us in the first place. We are a PGA Tour congregation, you know what I'm talking about? So like every once in a while... There'll be a good song or a good moment and like three people will start clapping in a golf clap and then they realize that they're like interrupting the presence of God here and they'll stop right away. <laughs> and that's, that's okay. But there are some churches that are more like NFL experiences where if you're not trying to interrupt the worship, you're not worshiping in the first place. The South Side of Chicago Pentecostal Church, you know? It's a different way to express gratitude to a God who's worthy of worship. There's an Anglican church in the suburbs of Chicago that I went to and I was going to Wheaton and... And, and people used to go to this church, it's called Church of the Resurrection, just on Easter because they celebrated. I remember I went once and they said, we're going to celebrate that God has risen. And then they said, let's celebrate. And then pe people just started screaming for some reason. They just started yelling and clapping and hugging and high-fiving. And it wasn't like we, what we do on the Sunday morning, which is like, greet somebody. And then when it gets awkward, we'll move you right out of that awkwardness because nobody likes to be there, you know? It was like 10 or 15 minutes of celebration. And it was hard for me because my background in worship isn't as much yelling and screaming that God is good and more reflecting on the fact that I'm not. But they celebrated well, and people came just to watch them celebrate the joy that God gives because of what Jesus did. It's a beautiful picture of what worship should be. When the first church came together and took communion, it was celebratory. Look at what Jesus did. And they celebrated because they knew that he was coming back. It wasn't just, let's reflect on a God who died for us, but we've actually seen him alive. We know he lives, and we know he's not forgetting about us. Communion, the elements, were actually a celebratory process of remembering who Jesus was. And so what we have to remember is that worship, man, worship is good and should be celebrated. 
And there are times to be somber and there are times to be serious and there are times to yell and scream and clap and say God is good. And what he's doing in the Levitical covenant is saying all these things are true of what worship is through and for all time because ultimately this is what it comes down to. Worship is what we were created for. The first picture you see of mankind in Genesis 1 is them delighting in or worshiping in God. We just went through all that in the Sabbath series. We sit back with God and say, he is so good. The last picture we see of people in Revelation is people that are worshiping God, that recognize the goodness of God and then respond because of that goodness. We were people that have been made to and always meant to worship. John Piper says true worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. And that's what you and I were created for and to do. And so worship is complicated. (laughs) Worship has us question what baggage we bring in, but ultimately it's good for us because it's what we were created for. And so as we laid out some different principles of worship, I hope it pushed some buttons for you. I hope it (laughs) secured some things that you know and think about. I hope it was good for you, but we're going to end this morning in worship. We're going to take communion together. Because as we come together, we remember all those things, the sacrifice element of worship, the cost element, the work element, whether you're feeling like it this morning or not. We're going to talk about how it was celebratory and good, and we're going to ultimately remember that this is what we were created for because we worship because we can experience the presence of God in our midst. It's a right response to the presence of God. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to take some worship together. And it's going to be a little different this morning, same kind of function. You'll go to the tables, but we're going to sing through worship. We're going to worship as we worship in communion so that it's joyful and uplifting and life-giving that we might know that God is good and we might respond to his goodness well. Let me pray for us. God, I am thankful that you have given us the privilege of worshiping you because we have the presence of God in and amongst us. As we worship this morning, (laughs) might we remember all the things that it is. Might we remember that it's personal and that it's costly and that it's hard and that it's work and that it's reconciling as we worship together in this room and that it's celebratory. Might we remember that we were created to worship? And might that just give us an increased joy for who you are so that we might see your influence grow in this space and in all the ones we go out from here because you're good. And our act of worship is acknowledging that and walking in your goodness. We pray these things in your name. Amen.